Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatched, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. We're glad to have you here again with us for another installment of the Double-Edged Sword program. We are definitely cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. That's what we try to do here on every episode of the Double-Edged Sword program. You know, usually here on Double-Edged Sword, either Father Joshua Wirth or myself, Father Fred Gatchett, we come to you with some kind of an insight, hoping to help you expose some of the grand deceptions and outright lies that are fed to us daily by our culture, which each day is turning further and further away from our all-loving and all-powerful Creator. In the past, I know, Father Joshua has tackled such difficult and timely issues as contraception, the failure of marriage, homosexuality, suicide, and so on. I know I've been treating a number of the devious isms of our day, such as moral relativism, multiculturalism, and consumerism, and there's more to come. But since we find ourselves now in the holy season of Advent, I thought we would switch gears a little and try to get to know a little bit better one of the great heroes of the Bible. In fact, by the estimation of Jesus, he is the greatest hero of the Bible. And that's saying something, since our leading man for the day is up against such greats as Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, and King David. Yep, we are talking about none other than John the Baptizer. I don't think anyone else has given him this title, but I like to refer to him as the patron saint of Advent. You know, John's job was to stand out in the desert and to proclaim the coming of Jesus, and John himself waited. John waited from whenever God called him until Jesus showed up for his baptism and he was made manifest to John as the Messiah. John waited, and during the holy season of Advent, we enter again into that season of waiting for the coming of our Savior. So I think in this broadcast, you know, first we'll get reacquainted with John by reviewing some of the key stories about him in the Gospels. And in the second half, after the break, um, we'll examine how the spirit of John lives on in the Catholic Church as evidenced by the world's hatred for us. But right now, you might be tempted to change the station. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I tune into Double-Edged Sword because Father Joshua and Father Fred take on the hot issues of the day that have substance and meaning in my life, and now I'm going to get a sermon on John the Baptist? Well, folks, if you want controversy, if you're looking for someone who is not afraid to scrap with the forces of lies, deceit, and corruption, other than Christ himself, there is none better than John the Baptizer. He did not get his head chopped off for riding the fence on moral issues or being a people pleaser or sending out all kinds of vanilla platitudes and sayings. If you want to be in the center of the storm of controversy, you have found it with John. And that continues to this day, and we'll see why here in a little bit. You know, the gospel writers refer back to the prophecies of Isaiah, um, and they talk about John being sent to prepare the way of the Lord, the voice crying out in the wilderness, make make straight the way of the Lord. And John's own preaching really only had one general theme, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Other than that, John was always very specific in his teachings, and that's what sets John apart from a lot of preachers. You know, it's really easy to get up and say, you should be nice, we should love God, we should help the poor, and so on. John didn't do that. John spoke very, very specifically to specific issues and specific individuals. And so we're going to see how, you know, how that all worked out for him and how it eventually ended up with him getting his head chopped off. But just like in our own times, 
There were many ordinary Jews, all the way up to the leadership among the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came out for John's baptism. In our own days, you'll see people just, you know, kind of old Joe Sixpack on the job all the way up to a bishop or maybe even a pope, you know, and they're all looking, you know, for some kind of a connection with Jesus somehow. At the time that John was baptizing and when Jesus appeared on the scene, there were many things going on in Israel that showed that many of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah had indeed been fulfilled and come true. And it would be easy for some folks to think, well, this John fellow actually may be it. Maybe I should put my faith in him just in case he turns out to be the real thing and the Messiah does actually come. There were no other, no doubt others who, instead of just hedging their bets, were actually convinced that John was preaching the truth. And there are others who simply thought that it was always a good time to repent. That's not a bad way to go either. There were certainly others who came out and heard John and were curious and stimulated by what he had to say. They received his baptism and then probably went about their business a few days later and forgot all about it. Again, I think people do this all the time. People go on retreats. People, you know, go to the altar call and accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and so on. And they think, well, that was really exciting for today. And then tomorrow they kind of forget all about it. But remember that when the apostles were put on trial before the Sanhedrin, after Jesus' resurrection and when he sent the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, we read in the Acts of the Apostles of the great teacher Gamaliel, who makes a reference to many false messiahs who had come and gone. And in that, what does he say? It says, when the Sanhedrin heard this, this comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 33 and following. When the Sanhedrin heard, Peter basically called him on the carpet, they were infuriated and wanted to put the apostles to death. But a Pharisee of the Sanhedrin named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up, ordered the men to be put out for a short time. Then he said to them, Fellow Israelites, carefully consider what you are about to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be someone important, and about 400 men joined him. But he was killed, and those who were loyal to him disbanded it, it came to nothing. After him came Judas the Galilean at the time of the census. He also drew people after him, but he too perished, and all who were loyal to him at the time were scattered. So now I tell you, have nothing to do with these men and let them go. For if this endeavor is the activity of human origin, it will destroy itself. But if it comes from God, you will not be able to destroy them, and you may even find yourselves fighting against God. So we can see that during back during the times of, of Jesus and John, there were many messianic you know, pretenders coming along. And so why believe John's teaching over anybody else? Furthermore, People had, you know, back then had jobs to do. They had families to take care of. They had homes to keep and maintain. You know, who would have the time to completely change one's life around because of the preaching of some madman in the desert? In other words, folks, the folks back then, when it came to engaging their faith, were no different than we are today. Nothing has really changed. John singles out those among the laity in the Gospel of St. Luke and the clergy in the Gospel of St. Matthew who are about to hedge their bets. That is to say, they came out to hear what John was saying, thinking, well, you know, we know enough about the scriptures. We know enough about the prophecies. It kind of seems like we look around and there, you know, this could be it. We don't know. But just to make sure that we're betting on the right horse, you know, in case this whole Messiah thing turns, to, turns out to be true this time, it wasn't true with Theodos. It wasn't true with Judas the Galilean. But hmm, what might happen this time? So they show up. And what does John say? John singles them out specifically and says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? 
bear fruit that befits repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now notice how John isolates the sin of hypocrisy and lukewarmness and then calls it for what it is. He doesn't give a general sermon about, you know, we should be authentic and we shouldn't be fake about stuff and so on. He, he points his finger right at the, his audience and calls them a brood of vipers. It would be interesting to see how people would have responded to be calling a brood of vipers. Or, but, you know, a brood means, you know, the children, so we call them a bunch of children of snakes. But it must have made an impression. Because very soon, people began asking John specific questions as to how they, as individuals, were to prepare for the Messiah's coming. What would such repentance look like? How would they know that they are indeed bearing fruit that befits repentance? When the crowds in general ask, what are we to do? John doesn't reply with some pious platitude like, be nice to each other, or don't hurt anyone's feelings. Instead, he makes a specific proposal. He says, look, he who has two coats, let him share with the one who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Notice that he does not even make the general suggestion of, well, go help the poor. He specifically exhorts his listeners to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. Then the tax collectors come up to him and say, and what should we do? And answering specifically to their situation in life, John responds, collect no more than is appointed to you. I think most of us probably know that um, the tax collectors back in Jesus's day had a notorious reputation for ripping people off. You know, they, they were commissioned by the, by the Roman government, by the Roman Empire to collect taxes. And anything that they collected above and beyond what, what was owed to the government, they got to pocket. And so when you had the tax collector like St. Matthew sitting there with a Roman soldier standing behind him with a spear, people tended to pay whatever the tax collector asked for. And so they weren't, they weren't very well liked. And so John says, don't collect any more than you're, than you're allowed to collect. Then even the Roman soldiers had their curiosity stirred by John's teaching, and they asked, then what should we do? And John does not answer them with some banal cliché such as work for peace and justice. Instead, he tailors his teachings to the life of the Roman soldier of first century Palestine. And he says, rob no one by violence or false accusation and be content with your wages. I mean, be content with your wages. How much more specific can you get than that? Note well how each of these exhortations would require the listener to either pay attention and put them into practice or ignore them. They can't simply walk away and go, gee, that was nice. That man was saying nice things. John is proposing specific things that are pertinent to someone's, to their own particular way of life, to their own particular lot in life. And once you know, they hear it, they either have to accept it or, or reject it. There's, there's no middle grounds there. The preaching of John then reaches a boiling point when he takes on Herod, who was the regional ruler of Palestine at the time. He was a Jew, but essentially worked for the Roman government or the Roman Empire as a puppet ruler. He had all the trappings of wealth and power, and he certainly seemed to enjoy them. He had a brother named Philip, and, he had, and Herod had evidently seduced Herodias, his brother's wife, away from him and was now living with her. When faced with this situation, you know, John could have just gone out into the desert again. He could have retreated back out into the desert. When people came out to, to hear him, John could have given kind of a generic sermon on the sanctity of marriage and seducing someone else, someone's spouse and wrecking the marriage is a bad thing. You know, he could have said that in kind of, you know, anonymous terms. And, and you know, the people hearing him would have understood exactly what he was talking about Herod and Herodias. Instead, 
in the Gospels of Saints Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us that John points the finger directly at Herod and Herodias, singles him out publicly, and says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You can see that John is not afraid of controversy. John faces it head on, and he faces it specifically. Now, at this point, we're going to have to take a little detour back to the Old Testament, to the first and second books of Kings. It is there that we find the great prophet Elijah. And it's not just to fill up space that Saints Matthew and Mark describes John clo John's clothing, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Elijah is described in, as dressing in identical garb in the first chapter of Two Kings. Later in Two Kings, Elijah is taken up into, into heaven in a fiery chariot, and the Prophet Malachi tells us that when, when Elijah returns, the Messiah will follow thereafter. Jesus then tells his apostles that Elijah has indeed come. He has come in the person of John. And after the transfiguration in the Gospel of St. Matthew, Peter, James, and John asked Jesus about the connection between Elijah and the Messiah. And so we read here in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 to 13, the disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said, reply, Elijah will indeed come and restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also will the son of man suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the baptizer. Also in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives a little more complete teaching um, in, in, in chapter 11, where Jesus says, as they were going off, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. And he says, what did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? That's a pretty good line there, because basically what Jesus is saying is, what did you go out in the desert to see? Someone who's going to tell you what you wanted to hear, someone who is going to you know, listen to the, the winds of public opinion and then you know, gauge his, his message accordingly so he didn't offend anybody. He says, what did you go out to see? That's someone, you know, a, a, a reed swayed by the wind? Well, if not that, then what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in fine clothing? Well, those who wear fine clothing are in royal palaces. Then why did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way for you. Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least born to the kingdom of God is greater than he. And so we can see that um, you know, Jesus has great esteem for John the baptizer, and that, again, John doesn't come out with, with a message that he knows is going to make people happy. He tells the truth, and usually the truth makes people upset, but that doesn't seem to bother John. Now, Elijah is sent by God to try to call the Israelites back into repentance during a time when many of the people had dumped the covenant that God had made with Moses and were worshiping just about anything but God, but the God of heaven. And to make matters worse, the king and the queen, Ahab and Jezebel, who are about as evil and corrupt as can be imagined, and as bad as Ahab is, Jezebel is much worse. In one kings, Elijah essentially draws a lie in the sand for the Israelites, and they are either to worship the God of Moses or Baal, the false God of Jezebel. You can read the whole story for yourself in 1 Kings 18, um, verses 20 to 40, where Elijah proves that the prophets of, of the false god are to be false, and as they're as false as their god, and then Elijah destroys them. Jezebel is furious and seeks to have Elijah killed. 
Likewise, when John singles out Herod and Herodias, St. Mark tells us that Herod was fascinated by John, while Herodias held a grudge and eventually succeeded in manipulating Herod and having John beheaded. With both John and Elijah, we find men in a situation where they're almost in a state of despair, wondering what they've gotten, this, gotten themselves into by, ser- by serving God. Earlier in chapter 11, it says, When John heard from prison, this is after Herod's put him in jail, When John heard from prison of the works of the Messiah, he sent his disciples with the question to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Jesus said to them in reply, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. With that laundry list of things about the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, lepers cleansed, the dead raised, and so on, Jesus is referring back to the prophecies in Isaiah saying that that's what would happen when the Messiah came. And so he's reassuring his cousin John in jail that John has not bet on the wrong horse, that you know John's done the right thing. But so anyway, we see that um, John kind of has his moment there in jail. Elijah hides in the desert. And there is where he experiences God, not in the noise of the earthquake or in the power of the driving wind or in the spectacle of the fire, but in the calm and the silence. And again, we saw that John from his cell sends followers to ask Jesus if he's the real deal or if we should look for someone else. Both of these men show us that working for God is not going to bring peace and assurance in this life. And the scriptures make no attempt to tell us otherwise. So, We've seen the treachery of these, of the, the two women are pretty much identical. Herodias and, and Jezebel are both pretty bad news. But what about the men? What about Ahab and Herod? Well, that's where things get interesting. So that pretty much does it for the first half of the program. We'll take a little break now and hear from the folks that sponsor our programming here. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Hey gang, we are back, and I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and also part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, also here in Salina, where I teach sophomores Old and New Testament, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Um, and we have been exploring the life and the very person of John the Baptizer as a spiritual study for the holy and joyful season of Advent. The image of John crying out in the desert for people to prepare for the coming of Jesus describes perfectly what should be our attitude during Advent. You know, John, the idea of John crying out in the desert means nobody's listening to him. It means he's out there, you know, the world is kind of going on and doing its thing, and there's this lonely voice out in the desert. And I think that with Advent, that's what's happening to us as Christians. We always kind of find ourselves having to swim against the current in that the rest of our culture is saying, wow, you know, from Black Friday until, you know, Christmas Day, everything has to get crazy. And the church is saying, no, things need to get calm. Things need to be quiet so that we can, you know, internalize and, you know, prepare a place in our hearts and souls for the coming of Jesus. But, you know, that that's why the image of John the Baptizer crying out in the desert, um, you know, it fits perfectly with our time during Advent. 
In the previous section, just in case you just tuned in, we noted that John was not out speaking in general platitudes or cliches. He spoke to specific moral issues and behaviors. And before the break, we had just started describing John's entanglement with Herod and his evil wife Herodias, and we saw how Elijah in the Old Testament had a similar running with King Ahab and his own wife, who was much more wicked than he, Jezebel. And we saw how Jezebel wanted to kill Elijah because he spoke the truth about her pagan cult. And we saw how Herodias succeeded in having John killed for his audacity to publicly state that her relationship with Herod was sinful. But now is, you know, we're going to go and compare these two men, Ahab and Herod, and how they respond to Elijah and John. Ahab seems to have accepted Elijah as a kind of a worthy and even honorable adversary. In 1 Kings 18, when Ahab's path crosses Elijah's, he says, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And then in chapter 21, after Ahab kills a man in order to obtain his vineyard, Ahab sighs, when, when Elijah shows up again, Ahab sighs, Have you found me, O my enemy? As king, could have probably ordered Elijah's assassination and gotten away with it. Um, Jezebel managed to arrange for Naboth's assassination so that Ahab could get his vineyard. Certainly the two of them could have figured out a way to get rid of Elijah if they wanted to. But it's almost like Ahab had, you know, as bad as a guy as he is, he wants Elijah around so he can keep his conscience. In fact, in the end, Ahab does repent of his evil ways in such a way that God himself is impressed by Ahab's sincerity. So Elijah, you know, had that little bit of a moral victory there. Um, Jezebel, she, she ends up dying and her body gets eaten by dead, gets eaten up by dogs. That's kind of a nasty story. But anyway, Herod seems to be about the same when it comes to John. St. Mark tells us, Herod feared John, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, and he kept him in custody. When he heard John speak, he was very much perplexed, but he liked to listen to him. That is the key. That's the keystone. That's the linchpin right there. When he heard John speak, when Herod heard John speak, Herod was very much perplexed, but Herod liked to listen to John. Now, why is that? We're going to check this out here in the next few minutes. Why would Herod go to listen to more of John's preaching when all Herod's going to hear is John berating him that much more? Why would Herod voluntarily sign up for more scathing criticism? I think the answer quite simply is that Herod, like all of us, is created by God. As such, he is made in the image and likeness of God, just like Genesis tells us. Since God is truth itself, and since we are made in God's image, we seek truth and we like it when we hear it. Sometimes even when the truth goes completely against the way we're living our lives, when we hear truth, we're attracted to it. It might make us uncomfortable, it might even make us mad, but when we hear it, we're attracted to it because it's truth and God is truth and we're made in God's image and likeness. As twisted and rotten with decay as Herod's conscience was, he could still recognize the truth when he heard it. And the morsels of truth that he got by listening to John probably kept his conscience barely alive the way a respirator in a feeding tube keeps a trauma victim you know, clinging to life in the emergency room or in the intensive care ward. Herodias proved that Herod did not need to keep John around, but like Ahab's troubled relationship with Elijah, Herod wanted John. He needed John. So perhaps at this point you're saying to yourself, this is all a nice Bible study, but how does it matter to me? Again, we go back to Mark's narrative about the relationship between Herod and John. We're going to repeat this one more time. It says, Herod feared John, knowing him to be a righteous man and kept him in custody. When Herod heard John speak, Herod was very much perplexed, 
but Herod liked to listen to John. Now, does this not exactly describe the relationship between the Catholic Church and the world? Like John the Baptizer, the Catholic Church does have a few general themes that it proclaims. But the specific teachings, such as topics of women's ordination, contraception, homosexuality, and abortions, are the ones that infuriate the Herodiases and Jezebels of the world. At the same time, the world seems to want to keep the church at arm's length. They want to keep the church around. Why? Because the church speaks truth, but whenever the church does speak truth, you know, in some form or another, they try to put us in jail. So even while one or more of the thousands of Protestant sects have caved in to social pressures and demands on the sanctity of human life, on marriage as a sacrament for life between one man and one woman, and all of, and on, on other such issues, the Catholic Church unfalteringly keeps proclaiming the truth in and out of season. When you read news stories on the internet, many times after the story, people can post their own, re their own reactions to the article. If you ever read any of them and come to any story about the Catholic faith, you'll usually find nothing but hatred and venom. The media did everything that it could to ignore the one and a half million young people who made the pilgrimage to Madrid this past summer for World Youth Day. The image completely overturns the popular culture's biases and prejudices. Why would young people? Because after all, what do young people want to do? The culture tells young people that they want to party, they want to have a good time, they want to go shopping, they want to spend money, you know, they want to get drunk, they want to have sex. You know, this is the stuff that's glorified on the TV shows and so forth that are, that are tailored for young people. So why would young people who are supposed to be doing these things that the media tells them to spend time and resources and roast in the spanish sun to see some old guy from a long long way away who's going to challenge them in the culture in which they live why would they do that i mean the, i think the media is just completely at a loss to try to explain this and so whenever they see one and a half million people show up for world youth day all they can really do is ignore it just like this coming January, we will find that whenever hundreds of thousands of people march on Washington for the annual March for Life, the media will ignore it. But let four or five disgruntled crazy women you know, show up someplace and demand that the Catholic Church recognize ordination for women, and they'll be all over the news because that falls into the media's pre-written script. But when you ever have something outside that script, young people marching on Washington. There are many young people, a lot of the, the younger generation now, is saying, look, a third of our generation, a third, 33%, one out of three of our generation has been murdered in the abortion mills of America. There's all kinds of potential friends and, you know, compatriots and so forth here that we're never going to meet because they were killed. And a lot of the younger generation doesn't like that. That's the Holy Spirit working through them. And so they go march on Washington and the, the media just doesn't understand it. So they just don't report on it. So I think, you know, we, when we look at the at the, these comments of all these stories in the media, there, there was one, you know, how many, one story that I saw that came through on the Yahoo News about World Youth Day, and, um, and then the comments that follow were particularly full of hatred. One person was completely dismayed as to, quote, why so many young people will go to see some Nazi dressed in a skirt, referring, of course, to the Pope. Now, if the Catholic Church really is out of touch, this out of touch medieval institution that exists only to oppress women and cover up the abuse of children, as one blogger put it, then why even listen to it? Why should it matter that the press or the United Nations or the sociology or English department at your local college or university, why should it matter to them what the church teaches? Now, folks, I want to make this very clear and listen carefully and never forget it. You ready? Here it comes. 
The Catholic Church is a voluntary organization. No one can make you join. No one can make you stay. If you are disgruntled while you're in the fold, the, you know, the church cannot force you to do anything. And every dime we have is donated. Now, under those conditions, how can there be any kind of coercion or force? If someone is really troubled by the fact that the teachings of the Catholic Church do not accommodate the ordination of women, sodomy, birth control, or abortion, there is nothing forcing them to stay. Anyone can get up and leave whenever they want. Compare this to those who are using the coercive power of government to force their way of thinking on others. If you don't like what the church teaches about gay sex, then leave and never come back and you will never have to hear it again. At the same time, there are those on the radical fringes of the gay movement who are actively seeking to have laws passed that anyone speaking out against their lifestyle can be fined and even imprisoned for hate, hate speech. Such laws are already in the making in Canada. I heard somebody talking about this the other day, and I don't know if they've actually passed the law yet, but they're getting to a point in Canada where if someone, if, if you know, some Catholic priest or Protestant minister or Jewish rabbi, you know, gets up in their church or synagogue and they happen to be reading from one of the parts of the scriptures that says that, you know, sexual contact between two people of the same sex is an abomination. If someone in the congregation is offended by that, they can go call the police, file a police report, and that priest or minister or rabbi can be arrested for hate speech. Now, again, you'll notice that in the, the, the teachings of the Catholic Church, the only thing the Catholic Church can do is what John did. John is out in the desert. He's got his, his camel hair shirt and his le leather belt around his waist. And all he can do is say, if you have two cloaks, give it to someone who has none. If you have extra food, share it with someone who's hungry. You know, you, you tax collectors, don't rip people off. You soldiers, be content with your wages. Herod, living with your brother's wife is wrong. That's all John has. He's got no soldiers. He's got no spirits. He's got no guns. All John can do is say the truth. That's all the Catholic Church can do. We have no, you know, we don't have guns. We don't have prisons. We don't have soldiers. All the church can do is say what, you know, is proclaim the truth. The, if what the church is saying is wrong then why don't people just ignore it and go on their merry way? Why are they trying to get you know, a lot of Christian teachings reframed as, you know, as hate speech so that whoever says them, then these various groups can use the power of government. And by power of government, I mean the fact that the government has guns and jails and courts and they can use them. And they can, you know, they can take someone for speaking the truth and put them in jail for it, just like what happened to John. The only church, when, when, when you look, for example, sad to say that, um, you know, for example, most of Protestantism has betrayed Jesus' teaching that marriage after divorce is not acceptable. In the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 10, what does Jesus say? The one who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Likewise, she who divorces her husband and marries, and marries another commits adultery against him. Now, Jesus is the guy who said there, that Mary, getting married after being divorced is unacceptable. Most of Protestantism has said, well, we don't care. You know, if you want to get, get divorced and get remarried and, you know, any one of these various Protestant denominations, fine. It's really amazing that the Catholic Church is the only one that has not claimed the authority to contradict Jesus. The only church that has not claimed the authority to contradict Jesus is the Catholic Church. And yet we're the one that are accused of being authoritarian. How does that make any sense? The insanity is the same as it surrounded John and Jesus.
Jesus is dismayed um, as to how the people receive, or as the case may be, refuse to believe, receive either him or John. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, in chapter 11, verses 16 to 19, what does Jesus say? After, you know, talking about John and, and about, you know, the greatest guy ever being born, then Jesus says, To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children who sit in the marketplaces who call to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not, did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He is possessed by a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is vindicated by her works. Again, folks, I don't know how that could be any more clearly represented than in our own day and age. You know, if, if Catholics were told that, you know, we have to live like hermits and we have to, you know, maybe have two changes of clothes and live in simple houses and ride bicycles and so on, people would say, those Catholics are crazy. On the other hand, if Catholics engage the society and if we live in houses and drive cars and, and do the things everybody else is doing, then like Jesus, they say, well, you know, those Catholics, you know, drunkards and, and, and gluttons and friends of tax collectors and sinners and so on. In other words, you know, for those who are in rebellion against God, no amount of asceticism is going to impress them. And if you try to say, well, we'll just kind of make friends with them and, and, and live with them and live like them, then again, they're going to betray you on that, on that account too. But maybe during the season of Advent, we can reflect more upon the life and teaching of John the Baptizer. Jesus says, of man born of woman, there is none greater than John the Baptizer, yet the least born into the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And that would include all of us. Maybe during this holy season of Advent, we can pray that we can live up to such a noble standard. So that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website, at dv, that's v as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. Um, you can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are archived installments of Double-Edged Sword and also the One Body Program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio. And those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure if you want to go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you want to listen to again. Also, check out our Donate button because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning in to this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.